In this episode, we speak to Ed Keelan, partner at Octopus Ventures. Ed shares with us his experiences growing up with dyslexia, pursuing his passion for entrepreneurship and a career in venture capital. With over 13 years of investing experience, Ed talks us through growing up in an entrepreneurial family, the lessons this taught him from a young age, and his commitment to mentoring young people who wouldn't typically have access to such careers. Thanks, Ed, for joining us on the Leadership Unplugged podcast. Thank you for inviting us to your offices as well. So we're going to get straight into it, talking about your journey to date, your leadership route and where you are now. But I wanted to take it back all the way to the beginning. And I wanted to ask you, if you had the chance to describe yourself to someone without mentioning what you do for a living, how would you do that? Oh, well, yeah, first of all, thanks for, for having me and great to be here. If I was to describe myself without mentioning what, without mentioning my work, I'd say generally somebody who's enthusiastic, likes new ideas, and is is always kind of trying to find out something new and, and find out what the next part of the journey is all about. Is That's, that good enough? I don't know. It's, it's a tough I question. I never really thought about it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely a tough question. It's actually a question that I think has been playing on my mind, maybe subconsciously quite recently, trying to not define myself based on the career itself. I think that can be quite easy to do, especially in your early stages of a career when you're quite caught up. That's your main focus. It's where you spend most of your productive time. One of our first guests, Craig Fenton, who, who uh, I think one key takeaway I took from his episode was that to view work as one part of your portfolio and that no job is going to kind of basically tick all the boxes or make use of all of your creative outlets. I know you, for example, do a lot outside of work as well in terms of your philanthropy and your involvement with various causes. So why don't you talk us a little bit through those? Well, th- this is a problem. When you ask to like describe yourself, you immediately start thinking, whatever I say here is going to say I'm so self-centered <laughs> and just to be able to massage my own ego. So yeah, it's really, really hard to, to answer that question. I guess if I, was, I hope I'm kind, I guess, I don't, I don't think it's for you as an individual to say that about yourself, but you know, I hope if somebody else was describing me, they might, they might use kind as a word. Um, yeah, outside of, outside of my sort of main role, I do enjoy kind of a number of different avenues, I, like I'm a school governor and I work with my kids' football team, but um, I'm also really interested in working with kind of young people. And so I work with charities like Career Ready, who are kind of trying to do a number of things, such as you know mentor younger people who may wouldn't may not get the opportunity to understand and see careers like the one I've been fortunate enough to have going through their schooling and then other great charities like Working Options which I'd you know any professionals I'd encourage to get in contact with Working Options because they're doing some amazing things with kind of outreach to schools where you're really just kind of giving younger people true insights into what the world of work is really like and and maybe interesting careers that they'd never thought of before Um, and you know if you don't you don't have anything to kind of benchmark yourself against it's very very difficult to then decide what you want to do with yourself um, which I'm sure you guys know as well you know so all of that sort of stuff Um, I don't I don't like you know I don't like talking about my charity work guys (laughs) so so, isn't it (laughs) so in in, in terms of kind of early childhood and upbringing um, did did you go to a state school or how was your upbringing generally how would you describe it 
I did go to a state school, so uh, which is interesting in itself. Um, I'm. I think the the stats are, are quite shocking, actually. That about I think it's about six and a half percent of people are privately educated, but they make up about seventy five percent of the sort of highest paying jobs in private equity and private equity like careers, like venture capital. So I'm actually one of the few. I think as a sort of state educated dyslexic. I'm not sure what percentage that that puts me in, but I assume it's quite quite uh, a small number. Um, but yeah, I was uh, state educated all the way through my schooling, and really even know what a private school was until I was about 21, and all of a sudden uh, I went to Rally International, which is this kind of thing where you go over to I went out to Nicaragua and did a water project, but apparently it's you know, predominantly private school children. I was like, ah, oh, didn't it? They kept asking me what school I went to. I was like, Tesbourne Community School? You probably won't have heard of it, <laughs> which is funny. That's the name of another, sorry, can I pitch a different, another podcast? Yeah. Am I allowed to do that? Is that yeah. bad on yeah. your right? So Sophie Pender's 93% um, club podcast, which is called What School Did You Go To? Which is for those of us that were sort of state educated and building professional careers and things. So yeah, but other, you know, super, I had a super supportive family. You know, my mum and dad, as much as it, it pains me to say, it's sort of my still my kind of best mates today and and very loving and supportive family obviously i i was heavily just dis- well, still am heavily dyslexic to the point where it's quite funny if you if you try and read anything i write there's, there's quite a lot of comedy in it generally <laughs> you know my kids my eldest is now sort of eight years old and she's she's asking me like daddy how do you spell biscuit and i'm like not a clue <laughs> ask your mother and so yeah yeah i um reading some of my old school works quite comedy really but you know, I kind of didn't realise when I was that age, or certainly didn't let it bother me too much. Just kind of muddled on by. Um, but I was probably quite—I say—I was quite serious as a kid. I, I think I'm, you know, sort of like Benjamin Button in some respects. <laughs> I take life a, a darn sight less, you know, seriously than I did when I was younger. I wish I could, uh, you know, shake my younger self and just be like, "Chill, man. It's fine. It'll all be good. It'll all be good. Just chill." Um, but you know, I guess you learn that when you get older. Um, so you, you spoke about kind of some, some of the challenges growing up and it, how did you navigate that journey after kind of your initial schooling years, kind of thinking of what to study at university, um, thinking of potential careers? Yeah, just talk us through a little bit about that journey. Yeah, there's probably a few questions in, in one. So, you know, stop me if I ramble, by the way. I have a horrible... So I'm, I'm really, you know, my, my parents were both entrepreneurs. So small businesses, just like in my DNA, it was you know, what I grew up with. So my mum worked for, or had, ran a company that sold horse riding wear, which is the irony being that none of us in our family rode horses. We, we didn't have the money or the inclination to get on a horse. But for whatever reason, my mum owned a horse riding wear company. And that that's a story in itself. My dad had a small kind of, like, effectively, he was like an insurance salesperson, but his own business, which he eventually turned into being a wealth manager. So, you know, proper entrepreneurial story, start selling life insurance and things like that, and then build it into a full kind of wealth management practice. And, and I saw that the, that entrepreneurial journey. Um, and, and really, as a kid, I just didn't understand. You know, I heard about people with proper jobs, but my parents never seemed to have them. They just, like, worked out the garage, and, like, you know, our house was full of stock takes and... You know, my dad worked every hour, you know, it sent. So I just was in that that environment straight away. So I was always going to go down the route of business because I loved it. Um, so that's why I I chose that as my, as my university course. So, yeah, I can't remember the rest of your question. 
that was all about it. In, in terms of kind of life at university, you mentioned that you're you're dyslexic. How how did being dyslexic affect your kind of time at university, and were, were your professors quite um, supportive of it? Were there the right like support structures there to enable you to succeed there, or to kind of fulfil your potential? Yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty old. So, you know, this is at the time when I mean, whether people know how to handle dyslexics now, I'm I'm not entirely sure anyway. But there was definitely less of an understanding back there I think then it was certainly seen more as a disability I think more and more it's been seen as something that's more just identified as a learning requirement and you you know you sort of have to put the right things in place so I thought a lot about that my, my journey with dyslexia is, is a really it's been up and down and it continues to be kind of up and down in the way that I think about it you know there are times when I think like yeah, am I even dyslexic? You know, is dyslexia even a thing? Who decided that dyslexia was a thing? And, you know, I'm like, I'm nothing like that next dyslexic, so I can't be a dyslexic. And then, you know, something happens like somebody, I know, talks in directions at me, and I'm like, my head cannot cope with being talked at like that. Or, you know, I'm asked to sell, I was asked to spell subtle the other day, and I was like, oh my God, it's got to be in there somewhere, but god knows where it is so you know like and then it reminds me that i'm you know you're definitely dyslexic head I'm, I'm afraid so yeah as a young age it was it was really hard like bottom sets for everything at school <laughs> so you know lots of tears over over feeling like you're not stupid or naughty but yet you're being kind of punished for just struggling so much that was really tough and and also with school i just assumed i couldn't get it so didn't really try probably as hard as that and it was only really when maybe I got to university actually the, the, the real turning point and so I did my I was at University of Hertfordshire so not the, the I'd actually got better A-levels than people expected and so maybe I could have I, the, anybody that's going to the University of Hertfordshire this isn't meant to be insulting at all but I've maybe been able to end up at a better business school but I did end up going to the University of Hertfordshire which was a great time some of the best years of my life but as part of that I went to San Francisco on a placement year and so San Francisco at the time is just the most amazing city in the world, beautiful place. And I met who somebody who's still one of my very best friends now, a guy called Pete, who is like a molecular chemist at Cambridge, won the Stanford scholarship, like one of the cleverest guys I know, probably the cleverest person I know. And we became like firm, firm friends. And I just remember walking down Ocean Beach in San Francisco with him and him being like, so what are you going to do when you get back? What's your thoughts on your degree? And that, um, and I was like, well, I just hope I scrape a, you know, scrape a two one, and I can get on and do that. And Pete was just like, what do you mean get a two one? Like, why don't you push for a first? And I was like, well, because I'm dyslexic, I can't possibly get a first. I couldn't do that. That's just not what somebody with my background does. And he was like, well, that's nonsense. You just need to. He's like, you're you're clearly as smart as people I know, smarter than people I've been at university with and, blah, 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 and you just need to apply yourself in the right way and work harder and it was you know it was one of those conversations that even now I look back on and I'm like I can still picture us on the beach you know chewing this over and like nobody you know my mum and dad were amazingly supportive but it was always like amazingly supportive but they had been told by all my teachers how f far I had to go just to kind of get to average you know it's like if he can get to average if he does this this and this and then there was somebody there that I truly had a lot of respect for that was saying, no, you can do more than average. Like, if, you're do if, you're, if that's your goal, fine, but, like, work hard and maybe, you know, and, there's, and I'm sure there's a lot there. And no one had ever said anything like that before. So I went back that year, 
and I hadn't actually told anyone at university I was dyslexic. I wanted to kind of do uni without being dyslexic just to see if I could. But then I was like, well, you know, I might embrace it a bit more. And so I got some extra time in the exams. My very good friend of mine, my housemate, Amy, who's ridiculously smart as well, she she was very kind and sort of helped mentor me a bit through some of the exams as well. And so that was, you know, really reaching out and getting help and not being afraid to get help is really beneficial um and so I did I went on and and got my first from university but it was the first time I think I had fully leaned into a being dyslexic and b going actually I'm going to try as hard as I possibly can now I'm going to leave no you know like I'm going to leave nothing here if I don't get it I don't get it but there's not you know it won't be because of lack of effort and and so yeah and then and again, stop me if I'm rambling. Similar sort of thing happened, kind of more recently. This is a yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a sad story that my my old boss I worked with at Octopus actually for about four years had been to Oxford, and an email came across his inbox saying, you know, do you know anybody that'd like to do a qualification at Oxford because he'd been to Oxford University and etc. And he was like, you should do this. And I was like, Tim, I'm never going to Oxford. Like, be serious, man. And he was like, well, I think you could, you know, do this and do that and let's work together and I'll help with your application letter. And yeah, so I did. I applied to Oxford and, and got in and did my master's, you know, three or four years ago now, a while back now. But the, again, likewise, I was like, right, if I'm doing this, if I'm going to Oxford, I'm going to absolutely put my all into it. I'm going to, to really go for it um, and, and not really have any excuses. You know, I could easily, I think you, people can use things for an excuse really easily. And I was like, if I get, a, you know, if I don't get a distinction, fine, but it's not going to be because I didn't try, and I'm not going to then use that my dyslexia as an excuse. Uh, I say it's a sad story because, and, and I say because Tim passed away unfortunately this year, so a massive influence in my life and somebody that believed in me. So his, his little bit of legacy in my life was that he uh, encouraged me to do that. Yeah, uh, that's amazing, and I'm sorry, sorry for your loss. Uh, sorry to hear that. Um, I will come back to um, your time at Oxford specifically, but just um, kind of taking back to your undergraduate years and having found this, I guess, some, some sort of drive or motivation to and belief in yourself that you can achieve above average. How did you then translate that into getting into the world of work and finding opportunities and making that transition? You know, you have to remember, I'm an awful lot older than you guys are. So, like, this is, you're talking, like, decades ago since I was at university. <laughs> the, the weird thing with a, somebody that's dyslexic, or often, and I, like, I use the, the term gets thrown around generically, like, every dyslexic thinks exactly the same way. It's like saying every neurotypical person would have exactly the same brain. They don't. And, <laughs> like, dyslexia is just something that's identified as, as a learning, you know, learning requirement, learning need. But what was weird was that, like, whenever I did a job, I was always good at it. You know, I remember everything from selling insurance, car insurance over the phone. You know, I did that for a while, answer the phone. You know, would you like car insurance? Blah, blah, blah. Smashed it. You know, worked at the golf course, being a greenkeeper, like, smashed it. And people would say, you know, oh, you, you know, got a lot more intuition. You can, like, problem solve without me telling you exactly what to do. You know, you just kind of get on with jobs when I tell you what I need and blah, blah. And I'm like, I was kind of puzzled by it. It was like, here at school, you're terrible and you can't regurgitate the facts that are being, you know, parrot fashioned at you. But at work, where you use brain, I was like, fine. And so I was like, as long as I get a job, 
I, I gen oh, you always end up sounding like a massive big head on these things, don't you? But like genuinely, I don't think there was ever a job that I did where I struggled with it. You know, for, which maybe that is in itself like a lesson in the skills we teach at school versus the skills you you need for work. And I do like a work experience week here at Octopus where we get like it's a massive week, get loads of people involved, but there's like twelve young people from local state schools around the office that we get in and and one of the things I do is I could do a whole thing on you know, get, get these kids in usually a bit shy a bit nervous get them around the boardroom table and all this and at the end of the week they're all chatting they're all friends they've all kind of like come out of their shell a bit and then I and I go to try and do this like session okay what's the difference between work and school that's what's the number one difference and they're like oh we've and they struggle they, they struggle to kind of you know oh I think at work you probably have to work longer hours or you know at work you have to work with different people I'm like no the, the main difference is the only thing that matters at school is your grades no one cares you could be the biggest you're not allowed to swear on these podcasts are you? you could be the biggest wally we'll use the word wally you could be the biggest wally going at school you could be horrible to every other person you could be mean to your teachers you could be rude as you like you get straight a's no one cares you're a success that is your that is the definition of success you know everyone hates you you've got no life skills you've got nothing to you can bring to a workplace but you've got straight a's because you can power fashion multiplication tables well done you know that's success you know but within in the workplace it's completely different the only thing that matters is your reputation mm. your grades go out the window no one cares it's whether people want to work with you you know whether you've got any sort of ability to problem solve for yourself you've got any intuition you've got anything you know any drive do you work hard you know do you go the extra mile or do you just moan and pull the life out of everyone by telling everyone what's not fair and what you haven't got and etc etc like no one wants to work with those people and so it's, it's understanding, I think, that, you know, for me, I think I was all right in the workplace because, you know, I always say there's, there's a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me. You know, there's no getting over that. I have to, have to deal with that. But people don't generally outwork me. Like, no one's going to outwork me. And that's in your gift. It's in your gift how hard you work, really. Mm. No, that's really interesting. I think I was listening uh, to podcast Bear Grylls did quite recently when he when he talks about how he was always the kid in school which was kind of the kid in the back of the class, very shy, somewhat bullied as well. And that actually built a perseverance within him, which in later life came in a lot more useful compared to, you know, the kids that are on the sports teams or, you know, flying high within the social ladder within school. So that's a really interesting observation. I, I wanted to touch on something you mentioned a little bit earlier about your placement year uh, in San Francisco. I mean, we're sitting at, in Octopus, uh, and you work in the venture capital arm as well. W- were you in San Francisco during the the, the tech boom? Or was there any was there any relation there? or Was that pure coincidence? You're, you're probably thinking like the 2012 tech boom, but I was in there in the 2001 tech boom, <laughs> which is the uh, the original before you guys were born, <laughs> probably. <laughs> and so, uh, yes, I was there at the I was there at the end of the tech boom, the original tech boom. It's quite funny because like I arrived and the, like the people before me were like, oh, you should have been here last year, mate. Like literally <laughs> they went out every single night on companies that were just raised tons of money to go to free pizza parties and recruitment parties. And, you know, any interns before me just got immediately recruited into whatever tech company needed, whoever. Not unsimilar to 2021 as it happens. <laughs> so it was really interesting to be there during that period, especially, you know, working in Silicon Valley. Weirdly, I still didn't know what a VC was. I didn't know what a VC was until 
I don't know, well, until I came back to England, certainly. And I was walking, I was walking along the South Bank with a friend of mine, Miles, and we were walking down the South Bank and he was an accountant with Ernst & Young. Sorry, guys. And he goes, you know, <laughs> PwC mafia over here. But like the yeah they were he was with Ernst Young and he was like oh I'm thinking of getting out of Ernst Young and I was like well what sort of careers do accountants have I thought that's just I thought you just did audit I was like that's the only career for an accountant and this is the problem with like harping back sorry going off on a tangent but that's the problem with like state education is that you learn things accountant accountant means audit that means doing someone's annual accounts at the end of the year and you go to different like privately educated. I'm, I'm assuming, and I don't know because I'm going, but I'm assuming you get much more idea of like career fairs. Like you become an accountant, then you can work in corporate finance, then you can work on buy side, then you can work in investing. And this, and you know, when, and Miles was saying, well, I'm thinking about going to work in venture capital. And I was like, what's that? And then he told me about that. And I was like, wow, that sounds amazing. That's exactly what I want to do. So yeah, I was there during 2021. So just at the end of the tech boom in San Francisco. And I think the main thing, you know, the big thing that obviously happened then was was 9-11. So I was, uh, I woke up in San Francisco and switched on my radio and they were talking about a plane flying into the Twin Towers, etc., which I thought was in Chicago at the time. I was getting mixed up with the Sears Tower. <laughs> and so that was, that was really tough because my boss's, you know, my boss's son worked in downtown New York and at the time, you know, everybody I worked with knew people that were working in or around the trade center so yeah that was probably that was probably more defining than than being part of that tech boom but nevertheless interesting um so <clears throat> well, you've done this kind of placement year in in san francisco uh, being oblivious to the venture capital world around you yeah. and coming back to the uk um what was your what was your first kind of entry into the workplace um what what, what did you do how, how did you get involved with it yeah, I mean, I should say the year in San Francisco, despite 9-11, was by far the best year of my life. And I, and I, and I don't mean that, I, was, I shouldn't say that, apart from getting married and my children and all the rest of it. Other than that, of course, me and, it, me and my friend Pete, who I talked about earlier, he basically spent, you know, we used to say weekend start on a Wednesday. And I, and I, and I would genuinely encourage, you know, if, any, if you have a chance to do things like that, you know, you really, really lean into life. You know, it's all cliches about life being short and all the rest of it. I'm not one to follow your dreams. I think that's a little bit like cliche. I'm one to be more like look at opportunities around you, create opportunities around you and run into them. And, you know, I remember having a long, long conversation with my dad driving back up to university and we spent, I had a choice of SO in Leatherhead or going out to San Francisco to put for the Chamber of Commerce in San Francisco. And, you know, SO in Leatherhead was paying twice as much as a defined graduate scheme, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I spent two hours talking to my dad, you know, driving back up to university and him convincing me that I should be going to SO. And I, I got out, literally got out of the car and was like, so what would you do? And he went, oh, I'd go to San Francisco, but then I've always been irresponsible. Mm. And that just like completely, you know, that was it. Straight away, that's all I was going to do. And so my first, go back to your actual question, just answered my own one. My first kind of intro into the workplace, I mean, I've always worked, like always. We didn't have any money as really growing up. It's not a sub story, like and there's no sub story. We weren't, you know, hungry or anything like that. But genuinely, we we had no money growing up. Not that I realised that you don't as a kid, do you? It's like it's really bizarre. It's like it's like you realise we're pretty broke growing up. I'm like no, nope, not at all. Always food on the, you know, there was enough food on the table. You know, yes, we didn't go on fancy holidays or do. Anything. I remember my mum and dad being like, oh yeah, you know, this. They were obviously this, the, the recession in the 90s that they. That they had it hard in the in there when mortgage rates were crazy and they were leveraged up to the hill. 
And I remember them being like, yeah, I just once we're through this recession. I was thinking, wow, I'm pretty much enjoying life. If this is what it's like when it's bad, how good is it going to be when it's good? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? What's it going to be like when it's good? It was like, well, you know, we could actually go on holiday that isn't in a caravan in a farmer's field somewhere or, or whatever. But so, yeah, I'd always just worked. Like it was, I worked for my mom, my mom counting jodhpurs and stock in the garage. I worked for my dad learning how to do that. And then I had paper rounds before you were legally allowed to have paper rounds, worked in kitchens, worked in McDonald's, worked in call centers. Like there was, there was kind of a, very very much a theme in our house if you wanted the money you're gonna have to go and earn it yourself and you know I remember so my sister who I'm really close to is just me and my sister who I'm really close to I remember one parents having to go oh the reason why there's no jobs for my son is because your sister's taking them all actually said that to me because my sister was like working at the vineyard working at the pub working because that's just what I you know I was like well she just graphs you know that's just what she does you know that's just what we brought up with so I didn't, I don't know. I don't, I don't remember a time when I didn't have a proper job or didn't work. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to fast forward a little bit to when you were working at Rolls-Royce. What were your motivations to kind of join Rolls-Royce at the time? Was it something which appealed to you? I and mean, it's quite a quite an established business, whereas I guess before you kind of come working in smaller businesses or, yeah, I just wanted to understand kind of what your motivations were. Yeah, my motivations for working at Rolls-Royce, I think, you know, my, it's really funny. Most parents would be, like, really proud of you for getting a job at Rolls-Royce. Um, whereas my dad was like, oh, I'm just a bit disappointed that you've decided to go and work for a big corporate. <laughs> I was like, he's like, I thought you'd become an entrepreneur. But I think in my own mind, I just, I wanted to try and do the conventional. I just wanted to see what it was like. I wanted to see if I could learn something, see what it was about, etc. And Rolls-Royce is a great company. Some of my you know, best mates, you know, still there, still doing great things, 20 years on, probably with incredible pensions and stuff, and things like that, things, sensible things like that that matter. I did nine months, <laughs> so, and I just, you know, throughout that, I just remember grey, grey buildings, you know, and grey projects, the speed of work was just not for me, and it, and it came to a head for me about when I got this email, it was like, the managing director of the not of the whole of Rolls Royce, by the way, just the managing director of the area that I was working, the sector I was working on, is coming round on Wednesday. Please make sure you're all wearing a tie and be at your desk promptly and things. I'm like, that's just alien to me, you know. Like, it's just weird. Like, entrepreneurs and and business and leaders should be there. They should be seen. You know, you should be able to find them. Um, but the the kind of mentality of that hierarchical structure that has been there for years and years and years so hard to break down well it's probably different now but this is you know you're going back 20 odd years it's probably different now and i just i just couldn't handle that you know you liken that to somewhere like octopus where i am today simon rogerson sits in reception like if he was in today he'd be there at the desk you know the guy that basically you know created octopus group which owns octopus energy and all the rest of it all those you know the household names and that you know, he's, he wants to see what's going on, wants to see, be amongst it all, and he wants to be visible. So if anyone wants to talk to him, then they can talk to him. They can, you know, they can put their two pennies worth in, and he wants to hear it. So that, and that really resonates with me. You know, I get excited by that. I don't get excited by being told to wear a tie on a certain day because certain people are coming round. And so, yeah, my Rolls Royce career didn't, didn't last too long <laughs> before I very quickly joined a startup. So after about nine months, I joined a startup called, it was called Cortec. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore. It was called Cortec, and they were doing some exciting stuff, and I just decided to join them and be employee number one. 
So would you say your your greatest learning from Rolls-Royce was that you didn't like working for the large corporates and wearing suits and working in grey buildings? Yeah, I don't mind wearing suits. I'm pretty scruffy, as you can tell, so I don't, it's probably not for me. But like, I, I think with that, just say it wasn't so much the tie. If I had to wear a tie every day, I'd have been all right with it. It was more the mentality, the idea that the, the, the leader should want you to change for them rather than understand what was going on. You know, I just think that's a weird way to lead. Yeah, I just think that the, the pace of it, you know, the involvement, the kind of the path. And it just, you know, I maybe deep down I always knew it. I remember on the graduate day at Rolls-Royce, you know, when you, you, it really started from day one. We went to the graduate induction and I was like, oh my God, we're going to get the chairman of Rolls-Royce talking to us about like how 50 graduates, future leaders of the company. I'm like, surely there's going to be the CEO of Rolls-Royce, the chairman of Rolls-Royce going to welcome us. And it was some, you know, the person that did the welcome thing was like, some manager in one division about 10 runs down this is the like the future leaders of the company <laughs> and i remember them being like who here is here for you know here for a career for life and like everybody put their hand up and then who here is just seeing what how it goes and seeing what they like literally i was the only hand I put my hand up i was like okay clearly i've not read the uh, indoctrination here and so yeah that wasn't for me but the the small company was and you know, that worked and had a great sort of three and a half, four years working for the startup. You spoke a little bit about the difficulties, especially when looking at kind of public schools versus private schools, when looking at networks which people are sometimes born into and the difficulty of actually understanding what options are out there. Like, for example, I, I'm similar. I come from, I was lucky enough to have parents or professionals, both in the medical field, but I knew nobody in my vast network or close network who worked in finance. Or, so I kind of had to meet people and figure out stuff uh, as you go along. Now, you, with your own journey, you tried something, you tried a conventional route, kind of an established graduate program type of route, found that wasn't for you, and then, and then found a startup. How did you go about finding this startup? And following question, what advice would you have for young people today uh, who perhaps uh, fi- have that same challenge? Um, what advice would you have on figuring stuff out at that very early stage and understanding what's out there? I mean, I think if, if you're younger, the first thing is don't rush it. Like, you don't need to panic. Life's, you know, although I've already said life is short, but life is also long in some respects as well. Like, you people have multiple careers. So I don't, I don't think you need to panic. But... Again, it's just about having the blinkers off and seeing what's around you and, and making it happen. So that, that startup, so what what happened is I was already thinking about leaving and I'd started to think about joining my dad and maybe taking over, even at that age. I've been, you know, for many years I thought about taking over my dad's business and whether I, whether I do that. But even back then I'd started to do like my financial planning qualifications and things like that just to you know, maybe that's the thing I should be doing. Just to give myself optionality, literally. So I'm a qualified financial advisor, despite the fact that I've never done financial advice or anything, just to give myself optionality, just to take the blinkers off and make sure you're prepared for what's around me. But I met this guy at Rolls-Royce who was doing something called knowledge management and doing consulting, and he's just started doing consulting projects outside of Rolls-Royce in managing corporate knowledge and, and then was talking about maybe starting this startup. So you've got two options then. You can either go, wow, this is really interesting. I'm going to go and say to that guy, hey, look, you know, if you need an employee, I'll be employee number one. Or you just kind of 
go into a shell and you don't you know you don't do anything and so I you know generally I do the latter you know I should say like the job that I got in San Francisco that wasn't advertised I just wrote to every single person that I could think to write to and spent you know any spare time I had just writing to people randomly to say hey could you think about employing me because I want to come to America to do my placement here I don't want to go to you know I want to stay in England and similarly you know you just have to like be aware of what's around you and what opportunities around you I'd already tried to start a company with somebody else that didn't really work kind of on the side probably shouldn't mention that now I don't think Rolls-Royce can see me it's like 20 years ago so like yeah I'd already tried to start a company on the side that hadn't really sort of ignited and then this opportunity came and I was like yeah okay and then they said, oh, right, we are starting the company now. We are going to do this. Are you sure you want to join? And I was like, hell yes. You know, like, get me signed up. Um, and that's how I started. But it's all about, you know, if you're interested in the amount of times people say, oh, you know, I'm really interested in getting into venture capital. I say, okay, that's, that. you know, there's 500 applications for every analyst role that we have in a week, usually. Really competitive, super competitive. I'm like, how many VC events have you been to? None. What tech startups do you know and have worked with? None. What accelerators and incubators have you gone to? And then, you know, then all of a sudden you'll find somebody that's like, oh, well, actually, I do mentoring for, I don't know, maybe it's a female founders network, or I do, you know, I've learned how to financial model off my own back, and I've made some Crowdcube investments to try and learn how to do it. And then and you're like, ah, okay, so this person is really kind of building their skill set. They're actually leading into things that they're really interested in and, and seeing what's out there. So... I think the, you know the, my, my advice is generally is number one just be really cognizant of everything around you and then number two is if like if you're interested in things you know start to just go to events go to things like do a bit of research see what's out there I mean like why do you guys start a podcast you know because you took the initiative that you decided it was something you wanted to do and it was interesting you took a risk at doing it most people moan about things that haven't come to them and it's because they haven't taken a risk to do it because they're afraid of failure yeah Whereas I think because I was maybe from an early age because I'm dyslexic, I was pretty rubbish at everything. I just constantly failed, failed every test, failed every exam, never got any good marks. I'm like, I'm never worried about failure. My, my entire, my entire kind of you know early journey is failure. So that also means that it allows you to be open for opportunities and to take risks and and that sort of thing. Just just kind of sticking with that with that point about about failure. Now, I guess fast forwarding a little bit into more of your journey as a leader yourself and working working in organizations, building teams, how do you kind of inculcate that same ethos within the people you work with where you help them feel, I guess, comfortable with failure and recognize the importance of, of uh, learning from failure rather than being afraid of it? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it's really personal to each person. So I don't, I mean, I don't think there's like one formula that can work for each individual you know some some individuals are very target based and they need you know they want you to set out the targets what should be expected what should be achieved and then I can either achieve it or not achieve it and I'm very results focused others are more kind of like emotionally you know differently maybe more emotionally focused and they want to I don't know find things that make them feel like they've achieved something that are not quantitative in the slightest you know just completely different so you have to really map yourself work with that individual that's what's really exciting isn't it about managing people and things is that everyone's different and I and I think you trying to work around that is is really important but I just you know if people are worried about failure say it's about 
But I'd say too, it's like somebody's rubbish at something. I mean, like, you just be honest and be like, yeah, it's probably not for you. Like, if somebody said, Ed, I reckon you could go up for a spelling test, I'd be like, I'm not, I'm not the person for that. And I don't need anyone to try and encourage me to do it. But, you know, there's some mate I work with some incredibly smart people. And sometimes it's just like, look, I genuinely, you, you're really, I believe in you. I, I know you can do this. Now, if you don't feel comfortable, fine, but I believe you can do this. And look, do you know what the worst thing that's going to happen is? Absolutely nothing absolutely nothing like I mean we I take the job that I do we invest other people's money and losing other people's money despite what people might think about investors and stuff is horrible like lose sleep a lot of sleep um, and you know take it really seriously because people have trusted you and you know if you you lose their money breaching that trust is is is, is awful um, maybe maybe not for everybody for me it's awful I hate it no, but there was I remember there was one particular time when oh my God, I'd worked six months at a project and it was going so well. I was being, you know, like you're doing so well and everyone was telling me how well I was doing, it was all good. And we'd relied on a third party to get some advice over something and it started to go wrong. It doesn't really matter what it was, ultimately. It started to go a little bit wrong and then all the advice that we'd got turned out to be all wrong. And all of this six months work, all of the kind of money and people I had invested in this project and everything else, and I, I honestly, I could barely breathe, let alone like make it through. And I, I never forget this. I don't even know if it worked. I don't know why it worked so well, but it did for me at the time. I rang my dad. I'm like, Dad, it's all gone wrong. You know, you know all these people relying. And, and my dad went, see the people on the train next to you? Because I was on the train going home, back to Richmond at the time. So I see the people on the train next to you. I was like, yeah, yeah, I see them. He's like, no one gives a shit. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? He's like, Ed, no one gives a shit. Like, life moves on. And I don't know, for whatever reason, as, you know, it feels like terrible advice now, but at the time it was really comforting. You know, we're a very small, we're here for a fraction of a moment of time and you do the best you can. And that advice, that advice really helped me. And I do try and sort of portray that, you know, when other people are trying to take risks, or should I take risks? It's like, yeah, what's the worst that's going to happen, really? You know, as long as you, you go in with good intentions. I mean, like, you know, don't go around murdering people, what's the worst that's going to happen? I mean, like, as long as you go in there with like your best intentions and you can prove you can work as hard as you can then nobody can fault you as long as you're honest you're not you're not being you know fraudulent or something then you know what's the worst that can happen and I kind of another in, you know another time <laughs> this makes me sound like a terrible investor by the way because <laughs> I just like it's gonna relay all the times things went wrong but another time that something went wrong another project completely different project a few years later now but even even worse situations it happens and and that one really fortunate octopus one thing we do at octopus is we give like free mental health coaching and stuff like that so if you are struggling at work or whatever it might be you know you can sit down and you can see a coach or and to take you through whatever it is i mean like how cool is that i mean what sort of company does that but there was one time when i was going through a bad patch a few investments had gone wrong felt really bad felt like i let the side down and talked to one of the coaches there and they were just like so you keep falling on your sword like you keep apologizing you keep trying to and I was like yeah yeah it's like, is it, it's like is it making it better I'm like mm, not really no I just keep feeling bad about it and, and he was like the truth is the only thing you can do is the best you can do did you try the best you could do were you honest were you open so like, yeah and he was like that's all you can do he's like yeah but what about my reputation he said your reputation will be what your reputation is you can't really control that and different people view you differently you'll have a different reputation to lots of people and therefore, the only thing you can ever do is your next best thing. It's like, what can you do next that's good? 
and, and it was good actually it was really good advice I often think that like when when things are really shit and, sorry I swore the second time <laughs> things are really bad and you know maybe not going as well as you'd hoped just always trying to do that next best thing you know so, do, so would you say that octopus or the kind of the, the place that you worked at before even they gave you that parachute where they were comfortable with failure or is that something that you kind of had to develop within yourself well, so I think I've always been comfortable with failure generally just because, yeah. you know, it's been kind of like ingrained in me from such an early age with learning difficulties. Um, but Octopus is, you know, Simon, you know, taught, he, he writes like a weekly uh, a weekly bulletin thing. And, and that's it's often the theme of his weekly bulletins, which is failure is good. I like failure. We failed at more than we've succeeded at. The risk is not taking risk. It's like big companies don't take risk, they hate risk. And that's why they just get stagnated and old and die. And you know, you look at what Octopus Energy's done, it's just like, it took a market that shouldn't, you know, it was just so stuck in its ways, built brand new technology to run it and took a hell of a lot of risk. But at the same time as starting Octopus Energy, we started other products as well, you know, and they didn't work, they failed. And, um, <laughs> you know, Simon's always like, don't care. You know, do not care. We'll continue to invest in things that won't work. We'll take big bets, and they'll go wrong. And you know, I did a, that last one. I did apologise. I was like emailed. So I was like, really sorry, Simon. I didn't mean to make it all go wrong. And he was like, really appreciate it. But you know, we we make big bets here, and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Now, working in venture capital, do do you think that sort of comfort with with failure that that's kind of ingrained in you to some extent? is a differentiating factor and a positive factor. We've spoken to guests before who speak about when dealing with VC investments and dealing with a specific investment, you kind of know, you, you kind of accept that it's probably going to go to zero because, you know, out of maybe 40 or 50, you bet on one or two being successful. So so do you think specifically in your role that that, that gives you an advantage? I'd say the first thing, I don't like failure, just to put it out there. <laughs> if things could go right, that would be much better. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, you definitely, within the world of VC, you, you cannot be somebody that panics. In fact, I had a colleague, a good friend of mine still, lovely guy, I won't name him just because it would embarrass him if he ever listened to the podcast, but like, and he struggled with that. He really struggled with it. He couldn't, the stress of the idea that things could fail. And you're balancing tons of risk all the time. And you're making judgment calls. And like you get, you get trigger shy because if you, basically every small investment is so risky. Really, you know, there's so much that can go wrong. You know, new competitors swallowed by a big competitor, management team turn out to not be who they say they are. Technology not as good as it was sold to you. Customers don't want it, etc. There's just so much that if if you worried so much, you just would never make an investment. And some people, a lot of people, I think that that level of risk taking is. Yeah, I wouldn't say risk taking because we try and mitigate the risk and we try and understand it but that, that that level of judgment and acceptance of risk that better way of doing it, that kind of risk acceptance um, isn't for everyone I mean what I would say is not all VC is kind of the same so at Octopus we manage around about 2 billion euros in VC money one of the most active VCs in Europe um, sorry just a very quick pitch we're, we're investing in the ideas industries and people that will change the world for the better uh, and we do that across multiple sectors and at multiple stages we've got early stage teams that go in like all the way to first check so like ideation stage got a great idea 
maybe started mapping out and what it's going to look like, maybe made a beta version, and they'll invest at that stage, like literally before customers. And then all the way through to the team that I work in, which is kind of a bit further on. So I only invest in companies that are at least a couple of million pounds worth of revenues and only in B2B software, business to business software, the sexiest of all the investment categories. But that works for me. You know, that works well for me as as an investor because of a number of reasons, because I like the financial analytics of it. And so when you've got revenue, you can start to analyze things. You know, before revenue is literally, it's much more qualitative but I like the financial side of the analytics and, and looking through that. But, you know, the other side of it is as well, it's like I'm generally, I'm probably overly optimistic. I love entrepreneurs. You know, my parents are entrepreneurs. I love seeing new businesses and the enthusiasm of entrepreneurs. Whereas the job actually requires you to say no 99.9% of the time, literally that often. Because if you think that, you know, the early stage first check fund will get 5,000 pitches a year and they'll make 10 investments. You know, the numbers are tiny of what actually gets invested into versus of what what your approach. You have to get used to saying no. Whereas I just want to invest in everything. (laughs) You know, I just think everything was a great idea and just love the enthusiasm. So, yeah, although although you have to be somebody that accepts risk, I think the stage in which I invest allows me to, to kind of measure that acceptance of risk alongside, you know, the other fun part of VC, which is kind of working with those enthusiastic entrepreneurs and and getting G'd up about what might happen next. Yeah, I think one question I want to ask off the back of that is kind of how do you say no? Like, because there's always, there's always a right way of doing things and a wrong way of doing things. Like, how, how do you deliver bad news as a leader? Because obviously, for example, if if you're a startup founder and you come to Octopus with great ambition and you're very excited maybe to work with your team and then you come to the end of the road and it turns out, you know, Octopus aren't going to be investing in us. How do you deliver the news to the founder where you're not necessarily kind of squashing on their ambition or kind of how do you deal with that relationship? I think trying to be transparent as possible straight away. You know, I've got like two opportunities I'm working on right now of founders that I said no to two years ago, you know, but you just try and say it in the right way. You don't try and lead people down the garden path. You don't try and, you know, overly kind of uh, promise things that you know that you can't deliver you can try and lay lay out the decisions logically i think where people it's like everything in life isn't it? i think where people get themselves in trouble is where they maybe say one thing to try and encourage the person it's often done from a good place you try and encourage them oh yeah we'll definitely invest in you yeah this is you're the best thing since sliced bread and then i know you see the numbers you're like whoa don't want to invest in this but you've, you've already told them they're the best things since sliced bread even before you've seen the numbers so now they think they're going to get investment and you've not done your job properly. You know, you, better to be honest at each stage. And that might mean you know, what you see is sometimes you lose a few deals because you know other people will be, se- be selling them the dream knowing that actually by the time it gets to the crooks of it, they might not invest or whatever. I think the hardest, you know, the hardest thing is doing kind of specific to the, to the VC role in, in that is when, I don't know, you do follow-on funding for example, so you've invested in a company, you've been on the dream together, hasn't worked out, they need more money to survive, and then you've got to say, you know, I'm not going to put any more money into this. I just think it's good money after bad, or we are going to put more money in, but it's not going to be with you as the, the helm or the leader. And and again, you just try and be as honest and professional as you can and, and not kind of sugarcoat things, I think. I think people, generally people appreciate honesty. They might not agree with you, but it's when they feel like they've been disrespected that I think people get upset. 
same as if you know you're leading something and in somebody's not getting promoted and they might think they deserve a promotion but you've been telling them all year that they should be getting promoted and they're doing a really great job and then you say oh sorry it didn't work out they'd be annoyed if you if you're honest about where they are on the curve and where they are on their pathway yeah. then they, they're much more accepting of it I, I wanted to touch on your time at Oxford and doing your master's there you mentioned it a bit earlier how one of your your colleagues kind of mentored you into Oxford and getting your application through. I wanted to ask you a bit, a bit about the selection process itself, how that journey was for you, and kind of what's the one tip you would give to a candidate applying for a competitive course such as an MBA there? I don't remember the application being too tricky, to be honest. But I, I mean, I put everything into it, prepared it, wrote the answers to the application questions you know stayed over in Oxford the night before to do the interview so I wasn't tired and I wasn't late and you know just prepare everything you possibly can I don't I have no idea how competitive it actually was for me to get on that course um I assume it was fairly competitive but I'm, I'm not sure I was doing I did an executive MBA and at that at that point it, it's probably much to do with like whether you can pay the bills or not but you know half the over half the people were directors of large corporates that were on that was on that course it was amazing you had like senior directors of everybody from you know Red Bull to you know other private equity firms and just uh, people that De Beers diamonds and just incredible like um, amount of knowledge within within that room um, which was fantastic I think that what I would say maybe the one thing is like really the passion for why you want to do that that's what they really want to know is like in the case of Oxford, it's kind of like, what, what is your reasons for doing this and why Oxford? You know, if those things don't come out or if you say, my reason for doing this is because I really want to make a lot more money and I think by doing this, I'll get a lot more money. Or if the reason for doing this is I really want the Oxford logo on my CV because I think it'll be really useful to my career. Now, what they want to know is like how you want to be inspired and, you know, how, they, how you think that that course will set you up to change the world for the better, you know, it, which is really funny because going on that a course like that it was all like I say directors of big corporates and things like that had amazing careers super successful people and a lot of them had decided yeah what do you want to do next they're like oh I want to go and build an NGO or you know that's why they were doing it they were they're reflecting on a point in life where they they wanted to actually take a different route take a change and they were using the course as a as a way of of moving forward in whatever they wanted to do next which was usually something which had a lot less monetary value than what they were doing currently so yeah, get that passion over, really understand why you're doing it and, and try and do it for other reasons than just the financial rewards of what it might bring. Yeah, that's quite interesting. I'd, I'd never I'd never imagined that actually, uh, kind of a, a group of execs going into into a business school and coming out the other end wanting to wanting to work in NGOs. But that's really interesting. And in terms of your, your own experience there, if there's one thing that kind of stuck with you through that experience, what would that be? Oh, there's so so many things that stuck with me. It was a humbling experience in some respects, being around as many kind of brilliant people as I was. And, you know, I probably get a text message from one person on my course, even four or five years later, I probably get one text message a day from one of the guys on, or people on the course. And it was, you know, so it's brilliant to build that network. I think what was really interesting about that, I said executive MBA, full of people that have done really well in their careers. You can imagine the amount of alpha that was in that room at any one time. And normally, you know, like, I'm probably a group, I, I'm the guy 
amongst a group of friends that organizes the holiday you know everyone transfers the money to because they're the ones booking the flights and all this sort of stuff and like that's always been my role you know like that's just who it is and and I think what I realized then is when you where you have a group of people maybe that are a bit more alpha or more that inclined is the way in which you kind of work with those people you've got to be careful and different and and I don't know how to put it but there were just there's just incidents of like where maybe you could force things through through weight of personality or force your your way of doing things through I should say through the weight of your personality you just like you can't do that you know you can't do that in the same way you know the way in which you influence people that's kind of what I was looking for the way in which you can make influence and mold and get things in your direction you know is not is not by kind of forcing it through in in maybe the ways that you, I always say I just like get shit done like what's the best thing about me kind of just getting shit done really and you, you, you have to be much more careful about how you get shit done when you're in a group of people like that but you know some of the most brilliant friends I've I've still got that I was on that course with I think we're going to touch a bit on kind of we've we obviously we've spoken about this in detail already about the dyslexic thinking and that's kind of that area of your of your your journey so far but I wanted to ask you what you think are the common misconceptions misconceptions about dyslexia and what needs to be done to get those debunked how can we as a kind of society overcome those misconceptions I think the one thing that, that upsets pretty much every dyslexic that I know is that is well is is when somebody says oh yeah I'm a little bit dyslexic I think I'm like 10% dyslexic <laughs> or like yeah I think I'm kind of like 10% dyslexic but more with this with maths or or they go oh you know what you know my husband's dyslexic it's never been diagnosed but honestly you try and get him to spell anything can't do it or which I had the other day and you're like it's not like that. You, you you can't just be 10% dyslexic. You can't be a little bit dyslexic, but with, you know, I can spell, but I'm not good at numbers, whatever, you know. I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to keep dyslexic to a small group of people or dyslexia to a small group of people and somehow own it, but I'm just saying that it's, it, that is the misconception that it's, it's kind of a little bit of a struggle with certain things. It's like a wholesale change in the way, way in which your brain works, and it doesn't just affect spelling, it affects all sorts of, things that go on like I said things that I can't I, I really struggle with are things like sort of instant recall of memory when people are kind of saying directions to me so if you were like right how do you get down to King's up to King's Cross from here and you tried to give me directions I'd be like my brain just wouldn't be able to take it and order that information quick enough now if we sat here with a map and we plotted it all out and then I'd figure it out and I'd get there um and I guess the other misconception is that all dyslexia brains work in the same way. You know, obviously some parts people have strengths in some areas and weaknesses in the other. Like my reading is is, is fine. Like I never struggled to read for whatever reason. Maybe not quite as quickly as others. That was never a problem. So you know, and where are other people that will be a real, with dyslexia that will be a real problem. But I think the biggest one is that you could be a little bit. You know, is it's just a completely different kind of mind, <laughs> as it were. So, I mean, I'm just trying to understand it myself more than anything. Is dyslexia something that you're born with, or is it something that can develop in later life as well? No, you're born with it. Born I mean, I it. think there is science in it that's, and I, and unfortunately, because I don't have a very good memory, I can't remember the exact things. But there's there's parts of your brain that just they've looked at that just operate in different ways. The way signals fire to each other are just different. And there's lots of YouTube videos, good TED talks on it, and this sort of thing. But yeah, no, it is. It's 
it's biological it's often hereditary you know and it's really interesting so one of the positive i'll do it i'll reframe because it's often thought of in a negative way in terms of dyslexia and things that you know you can't spell you struggle to read or you struggle with memory recall and things like that but one thing that i found that really showed me actually okay my brain works really well for this sort of stuff and put that down to my dyslexia is in seeing things very very quickly and how projects should be at a high level so if i gave you an example like the work experience week we do i'll just bring that up again whereas you know you might get a room of people all throwing around ideas and really kind of like have taking a while to come up with it and who should we have and what should we do in this it's like you say oh can you organize a work experience week and immediately in my head would be like well first of all i'd probably come up with the idea to do the work experience week in the first place but then i'd map out in my head i'd map out the entire week straight away like it, I'd know oh, I have that sort of person there, that person there, this person there, or fit together like this. this is what we'll do over lunchtime. Da, 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 and straight away, that project would be done. And when I was doing my masters at um, Oxford, we had we did this thing called a petacucha, which you probably, you probably not heard of it. It's like we have to do a presentation of twenty pictures. So you just have to do pictures, and you have to do it on a topic. And so I think this was like twenty pictures on a topic around inspiration. I was like. Okay, so I sat there, sat at my desk, got my PowerPoint out. I was like, I'm going to do the inspiration of an entrepreneur and how I find entrepreneurs inspiring. And I very quickly, you know, in my head mapped it out. And I went up to the table after about 15 minutes. I was like, right, I've got my presentation. I'm ready to, I'm ready to do it. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I've done the presentation. I've got my 20 pictures, like you said. I've got them, you know, I'm ready, I'm ready to do it on inspiration. And they're like, no, no, you've got the entire day to do this presentation. This is not like a a 15 minute thing this was the entire day and I was like but the way that my head works is like it's amazing when you find when you speak to another dyslexic because talking to Jamie Wade who from Talco who is a like dyslexic, dyslexic screening company and we we're talking about education and it was just amazing because straight away Jamie was like and if I was really doing education I'd do this and then I did that and x y and z and you know just again as a fellow dyslexic you could see that it was just immediately problem solving immediately seeing it. so yeah, there are, there, are, there are positives as well. Just carrying on with that, can you think of any examples in, in, in your day job as, as an investor where a different perspective is, is, is a positive and is a differentiator? Uh, all, I mean, all the time. I'm very fortunate. Me and, my, me and my boss, Richard, I get on you know, really well with. He's, he's, he's a great guy and I've worked together for many years now. We are like chalk and cheese I mean he is ridiculously smart you know very quick thinker you know very uh, he, he's the sort of person you want in a, in a quiz because you'll know all the facts to everything um, all the rest of it but I think then I you know if there's like hey we need a new process or a new team structure or we need a new way of like we, we did the other day like how do we allocate deals for example to people and things like that and it's like hmm okay well we could do it like this we set it out like that and blah, blah, blah. and say so it's nice because I think he appreciates that maybe that's kind of where my kind of where my side comes in and you know he he's much better at all the stuff that takes a high intellect <laughs> and uh, you know those two things kind of work well together so yeah or every anything from building processes to organizing the christmas party for the team or whatever <laughs> you know it's like i'll do that thinking um, you, you touched on delegation there very briefly so I, i've recently read a book called turning the ship around which you've might have read it's, it's by a u.s submarine admiral um, who goes into a submarine squadron which is performing poorly and he kind of turns the ship around uh, as the title suggests and kind of makes it into a high performing team and one of the questions he asked in the book which i thought was quite interesting 
is you know as a leader when you're thinking about delegation what what do you worry about the most and how do you overcome that worry when delegating things obviously you worry about the person not delivering on what you've asked them to and 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 not doing it i mean i i think that we're i'm unfortunately in octopus is like octopus has a culture that people are hard working and you, you don't really survive very long if you're not kind of delivering what you said you would do it's very different to other places so what do i worry about most honestly here i don't i don't worry too much i think giving them giving that person time to deliver it to you such that if it isn't what you wanted you've got time to change it and turn it around i think the problem with delegation happens when you give somebody a deadline which is the same as the delivery line and then you say oh well it's not how i wanted it or not how i thought it should be done you're like okay well as a leader you've got to allow that person well a you've got to i learned early on as well with delegation that when you delegate something you shouldn't delegate something expecting it to be how you would do it you delegate something to solve the problem if it solves the problem that's the important bit not that it you've got there the way that you wanted to get there mm. does that make sense to you guys yeah, yeah you know i don't know if you ever had a boss and you're like they're like oh write me this you know draw me a poster for whatever and you like you put the poster together like oh i actually thought it should be a different color you're like well i quite you, you know you, you have to accept that it that you're not going to it's not going to be how you wanted it but the second thing i definitely learned is that you better put in some fat so that if there are essential things to do with that task that you can work with that person to put those things right and you should encourage them to work to those sorts of t- to work to the timelines if you if you possibly can mm-hmm. yeah i'd say those were the main things thank you so the final question i'll ask if we wrap up just touching on the theme of mentorship right now you've spoken about quite a few different people who've had a significant impact on on your career and your personal personal life and you yourself have been recognized as as as, as being a mentor uh, of note what advice would you have in terms of what makes a good mentor one and how young people can seek out appropriate mentors and build that build that relationship yeah i think so i've had very mixed mixed results i'd say with mentoring <laughs> so um you know one of my first mentees juan who i mentored through career ready is just the most amazing person just one of those people full of energy just you know and but she really leaned in you know what I mean? She took the opportunity, and I, I think as m- the mentor-mentee relationship is as much about the mentee. In fact, I'll rephrase that: the mentor-mentee relationship is more about the mentee than it is the mentor. Like the mentor can only give what you ask from them. And what I found, like where I've done it with other people, I'd be like, okay, so what do you want to get from this? Oh, I don't know. Okay, well, what are you trying to do? You know, I don't know. I just hope you could help me trying to find a job. I'm like, okay, well, you know, like my job is as a mentor is not to find you a job it's to try to work with you to find out you know the path that you want to go on what's going to interest you like what skills you need to develop what you need to work on and so yeah it definitely understands that and because of that if you're if you're looking for a mentor and you're a mentee then make sure it's somebody you want to talk to (laughs) like make sure it's somebody you want to take the advice from because actually there's probably a lot more people willing to mentor you than you think if you go and i mean there's tons of organizations that can pack can put you with a mentor you know people like career ready you know that's it one done you know just go and contact them but you've got to you've got to know what you're trying to get out of it and not expect some sort of silver bullet to towards a career is what i would say come armed with questions and ask to do practice interviews and you know ask to look people to look over things or help you work out difficult situations and all this sort of things from a mentor side it's about listening 
I'll go back to Jawan. You know, one thing that she was deciding whether she wanted to go to do a degree apprenticeship or do a degree. And she was smart. You know, she could do either. And I was like, oh, you should do a degree. I did a degree, and that's what you should do. And she was like, well, the degree apprenticeship, you know, I come out four years with UBS. You know, they pay for me to study at Exeter University. I come out with that. I was like, what? Sorry? <laughs> I was like, you, you do four years at UBS, and then you get a degree, and then you come out with all the qualifications, you get no debt, and you get paid really well. I mean, you definitely do the degree apprenticeship. Definitely don't go and do a degree. And she wanted to stay in London, you know. And so I think that was a real lesson for me as a mentor to be like, you know, my job is to listen to the options and listen to the thought process and then like weigh it up together and, and truly understand that for an individual. You know, their life experience is completely different to yours. So, you know, you have to respect that. If you get it right, it can be super rewarding, super fun. But it's, you know, it'll, it might take a while. I mean, I. I Juwan was somebody through career ready and that worked really well I've, other people I've mentored I think it's been more on a, like a personal you, you, I've mentored lots of other people through other organisations but it's only been like maybe a few sessions and it's sort of fizzled out or whatever they just haven't leaned into it so where it's worked better is where I've known that person had a personal connection and, and you can do it and I think there's this kind of idea that you just need to sign a form and get a mentor and then you know actually you're better off trying to probably seek out somebody yourself or meeting somebody to click with and asking them you know once you build a connection to to be your mentor because you'll probably get more from it and, and they'll be able to give you better advice as well that, that's i think that's fantastic advice and i think yeah the whole conversation was 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 really really interesting and a lot of a lot of insights there and quite a fresh perspective on a lot of topics as well so thank you so much for your time today Thanks, guys. i feel like i've just rambled at you for like an hour about, about uh, nonsense so i, I, I think right. it was a very very entertaining and very insightful ramble so that, okay. that's what we're all about here so fantastic um and uh, yeah thank you so much for your time no worries thanks for having me thank you cheers guys